Have you ever thought, even for just a moment, that you were a better Christian than someone else? Or maybe the same question from a different angle. Have you ever thought, even if just for a moment, that someone else was a far greater sinner than you are? You know, if we're honest about the thoughts that sometimes cross our minds, then everyone in this room, myself included, we know that we have all thought both of those things. Likely many times. And that is because pride is a demon that regularly lurks on our spiritual front steps. As we pick back up with Luke's narrative this morning, we're going to explore one of the more touching stories from the ministry of Christ as we see the humility of a forgiven harlot received with the kindness and graciousness and mercy of her Savior. Look here with me at Luke chapter 7 as we pick up with verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head, and began kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. The first thing that we see in this first paragraph of the text, brothers and sisters, is a contrast between two sinners. A contrast between two sinners. You know, we learn later in this narrative that Simon is the name of this particular Pharisee who invited Jesus over for supper. This kind of hospitality was very common during this time, especially when popular itinerant rabbis came to town. Maybe Simon had ulterior motives since the Pharisees were watching Jesus with a great deal of suspicion. Or maybe he simply wanted the notoriety of hosting Jesus for a meal. At the end of the day, we're not sure why Simon invited Jesus to his house. We just know that he did. Many homes during this period had an open floor plan with bedrooms around the perimeter and an open courtyard and cooking fires in the center. There would be a large opening on one side of the house into the street outside, and so people could easily walk by and look inside to see what was happening as they passed. If someone notable was being hosted, people might stop to chat or to listen or even to sit for a while and observe by sitting around the edge of the courtyard. So that was very common during this period. The tables, of course, were also low to the ground. And guests would basically recline on pillows with their head and hands toward the table and their feet and legs back behind them. We can rightly assume that Jesus had been ministering in the town in the days prior to this occasion and that the woman who found him was someone who had been significantly impacted and changed as a result of her encounter with Christ. She is referred to here as a sinner. 
which designates someone who had committed a moral sin rather than just violating a Jewish ceremonial law. Commentators almost universally believe that she was a prostitute. We know from verse 47, however, if you go down further, we'll see it in a minute. We know from verse 47 that though her sins were great, she had experienced the forgiveness of Christ. So her heart's desire was to find and honor Jesus as the one who had forgiven her, as the one who had saved her. She learned that Jesus was at this particular Pharisee's house, so as she went there, she grabbed her her most prized possession, what was likely her most valuable asset, an alabaster vial of perfume. She grabbed that and she went to the Pharisee's house. She entered into the courtyard of the house and approached Jesus as he was reclining at the table with his feet out behind him. In that moment, her emotions came pouring forth. Jesus was a man unlike any other man she had ever met. He did not use her for his own pleasure, and he did not scorn and reject and persecute her for being a prostitute. Jesus was a friend to sinners, a merciful savior to those who came to him in faith. Though she had likely spent years in service to the world, to her own flesh, and to the devil himself, this man had lifted her out of the gutter of sexual debauchery and given her new life. So as this woman looked upon Jesus, tears of joy and gratitude began to flow. She fell at his feet And as her tears dripped down, she did something scandalous in Jewish culture. She let down her hair. The Talmud taught that a woman's hair was her glory, and therefore it was shameful for a woman to let down her hair in front of any other man but her husband. In fact, the Talmud said that a Jewish man could divorce his wife if she showed her hair to another man. But this woman let down her hair and used her hair and her tears to clean the feet of Christ. And then she kissed his feet and anointed them with the perfume. This was an incredible gesture of love and humility on her part. Again, washing feet was the job of the lowest slave in the house, but she put herself in this place of reverence and submission to honor her Savior, to pour out her heart, to demonstrate her love for him with this fragrance, with this act of service. She wept for joy and worshiped at his feet and showed astonishing affection for the one who had set her free. Now let's contrast her humility and gratitude, however, with the attitude and actions of Simon. We pick up in verse 39. We see that when Simon saw this harlot come into his house and fall at the feet of Jesus, weeping and worshiping and anointing him with this perfume, he said in his heart, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Simon wasn't struck by the beauty of what this woman did. Simon was offended and embarrassed by what she did. 
The woman was worshipful. Her actions exalted the worthiness of Christ. But Simon was judgmental and his thoughts exalted himself. He viewed the woman with disdain. And because Jesus let him touch or let her touch his feet, he also viewed Jesus with disdain. In fact, he was so offended by what the woman did that he questioned Christ's identity. This Pharisee thought that he was maintaining high moral standards. To him, religion was about being good and keeping the law and being ceremonially clean so he could only condemn sinners. Simon was graceless, merciless, and loveless. As Philip Graham Ryken said in his commentary, he believed that grace was unavailable to sinners like the woman and unnecessary for a righteous man like himself. Brothers and sisters, as we think about this harlot and this Pharisee, which one do we identify with more? Are there some people that you know that you think are so vile that they are unforgivable? Or are you staggered by the thought that Jesus could love and forgive someone as vile as you? Do you take pride in your spiritual accomplishments and view yourself as a worthy gift to God's kingdom? Or do you lay everything, including yourself, at the feet of Jesus, acknowledging that he alone is worthy? Do you tend to judge others secretly in your heart, thinking that you know better who they are and what they should do and how they should change? Or do you humbly acknowledge that only God can know someone's heart, that only he is qualified to judge others? And that you are called to love other sinners with the very same compassion, mercy, and grace that he does. Are you thankful that you are not as bad as other people? Or are you thankful that Christ showered you with grace in spite of how bad you are? Brothers and sisters, if we know and understand who Jesus is, for we, who he, for we see him for who he really is, that will humble us. That will bring us to a place where we dare not look down on others, but where we literally bask in the glory of Christ's mercy to such a wretch like us, like me. Jesus does this transforming work in us, right? No one is beyond his reach over and over again in Scripture. That is what the testimony of the Word shows us, that no one is beyond the grace of Christ. Think of Saul. Saul was a, a Pharisee. Saul was committed to Judaism. Saul thought he was serving God Almighty by persecuting Christians, by seeing them put to death, by seeing them arrested by seeing them driven away. And yet God in his grace changed even a man like Saul, transformed him from being a, a hateful persecutor of the church to an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, changing his name even to Paul. 
Oh, brothers and sisters, this is the power of Christ. This is the power of Christ in us, and this is the power of Christ to transform anyone and everyone who would believe on him for salvation. Jesus, as it says in Colossians 1, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, our attitude towards one another is not to be like that of Simon. No, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Here in this text, we see not only, however, this contrast between two sinners. We also see what makes the difference between them. And that's my second point. Let's talk about the transforming power of forgiveness. The transforming power of forgiveness. Pick up with me in Luke 7 at verse 40. And Jesus responded and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. We want to remember here, brothers and sisters, that Simon had said nothing out loud. He was thinking unkind thoughts. He was saying things to himself. And he was about to find out exactly how much of a prophet Jesus was. To quote Riken again, not only did Jesus know exactly what kind of woman was washing his feet, Jesus also knew exactly what kind of man was sitting across the table from him. Jesus used a brief parable about two debtors to teach Simon the truth. There was one debtor who owed 500 denarii, which was almost two years of wages. Another owed only 50 denarii, which was roughly a little less than two months' wages. If the money lender forgave both debts, which debtor would love him more? Well, the answer is obvious. And, and Simon gave the obvious answer. The one who had been forgiven more would love more. Simon had judged correctly. So Jesus now turned and drew Simon's attention to the harlot. There in verse 44, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? And that question there in the text is important because Simon looked at the woman and saw only a detestable prostitute. He was not seeing her with the eyes of God. So Jesus proceeded to show Simon the difference between them. According to the practices of the day, when you were an invited guest arriving at someone's house, you would find a small foot bath and a towel to wash your feet, or perhaps there would even be a servant there who did it for you. After your feet were washed, the host would greet you by kissing you on both cheeks, 
and then he would either offer you oil or he himself would anoint your head, your forehead, with a few drops of oil. And again, they did this because the climate was very arid and it made your skin dry. After all of that, you would be rightly prepared to recline at the table for conversation and for food. Simon did none of these things. Simon didn't even fulfill the basic cultural obligations of hospitality for Jesus. His rudeness and lack of courtesy revealed that his heart was arrogant and indifferent towards Jesus. In fact, it was just as arrogant and indifferent toward Jesus as it was towards the woman. In contrast, the woman did everything Simon did not do and so much more. She cleansed the feet of Jesus in a most humble and personal way. She kissed the feet of the one who set her free. She poured out her most prized possession to anoint his feet. In short, she surpassed Simon in every respect because she loved and worshipped Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the striking truth of this story is that the harlot from the streets had better doctrine, had a better understanding of God, and a more humble and worshipful heart than the Pharisee. Than the Pharisee who knew God's word and kept the law and went faithfully to synagogue every Sabbath. The woman knew she was a sinner and she believed the words of Jesus. The Pharisee believed himself to be righteous and viewed the compassion of Christ as shameful. What made the difference between these two sinners? Forgiveness. The forgiveness of Christ is what made the difference between them. She had trusted Jesus to forgive her sins, and Simon had not. She was no longer defined by her depravity, while Simon was still defined by his depraved self-righteousness. Her love and her worship and her thankfulness was proof of her new nature. That's what Jesus affirms in verse 47. Jesus did not forgive her because she did these things. He clearly says that her sins had already been forgiven. The tense of the verb here means that it was an action that had taken place in the past with continuing effect. Thus, as a result of forgiveness, she sought out Jesus. As a result of forgiveness, she had much love for Jesus. But for Simon, Jesus said, look there at the last, The one who is forgiven little loves little. The more we feel we do not need forgiveness, the more self-righteousness takes hold of us. And the more self-righteous we are, the less love we have for others. Brothers and sisters, it's that simple and it's that sad. The more self-righteous we are, the less love we have for others. I ask at this point this morning, brothers and sisters, do we love in a way that reflects our status as forgiven children of God? Are you mindful each day of the incredible, personally insurmountable debt of sin that Christ has forgiven you? Is the glorious truth of that divine forgiveness born out in you as a love for Christ? 
Does the power of his forgiveness lead you to seek him out and worship at his feet each day? Does the wonder of his forgiveness humble you and inspire you and move you to love and forgive those who have sinned against you? Do you embody the humble compassion of your Savior so that rather than being critical or judgmental of others, you are a fountain of mercy and graciousness and biblical wisdom and joy? You know, as I prepared my sermon this week, I asked myself each of those very same questions. And I realized again how I daily fall short. But do you know what the good news is, brothers and sisters? The good news is that everywhere we fall short, Christ measures up. Everywhere you are deficient, Christ is sufficient. Everywhere that you lack, Christ overflows. If He is our Savior, if we are trusting Him, then our moments of prideful thinking, our bouts with apathy, our judgmental or unloving spirit, all of it is covered by His blood. Praise be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can live daily in the truth of 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the truth of the gospel that is true for believers every day. It's not just the moment we're saved, brothers and sisters. It's every subsequent moment of this life. If we truly belong to Christ, we know there is ever a fountain of forgiveness that flows to self-righteous people like us. Praise be to God for his patience with us, his love for us, the gift of himself to us. Brothers and sisters, as we, as we are staggered again by the wonder of that divine forgiveness that is continually ours in Jesus Christ, May the truth of that cause us to walk in his splendor more faithfully. As we see him and as we understand the incredible nature of his mercy toward us, <coughs> may we love him more fully. May we return then to our first love in every way. May we rediscover the joy of pouring out our hearts each day at his feet of delighting in the goodness of his person and the warmth of his love. As it says in Ephesians 1, 7 through 9, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. All praise and glory and honor be unto Jesus our King. Be struck again, be staggered again by the wonder of his power of forgiveness to you.
That takes us to the final couple verses of this text where we see my third point, the divine assurance of Christ. The divine assurance of Christ. Pick up with me at verse 48. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As I already noted a few moments ago, the woman was already forgiven before she even showed up at Simon's house. It was the forgiveness of Christ that moved her to seek him out and honor him in the way that she did. So these last couple verses raise a question for us. If her actions prove that she was already forgiven, why did Christ say it again? Well, there are two reasons. First, it was to show Simon and everyone else there that he had the authority to forgive sins. Jesus said this to show Simon and everyone else there that he had the authority to forgive sins. J.C. Ryle, as he was commenting on verse 48, said that Jesus gave here a public and authoritative declaration of forgiveness. The Jews rightly understood that only God can forgive sins. So as we see in verse 49, everyone else at the table was taken back by his statement to this woman. To translate this into modern English, they were all saying in their hearts, who do you think you are? And you know what the answer is? The answer is that he is God the Son who wields the divine right to forgive sin. Jesus demonstrated that answer with what he did. When we look through the gospel accounts, brothers and sisters, we often see that Jesus' bestowal of forgiveness shocked people more than his power to do miracles. So one of the key reasons that Luke records this narrative is so that we will know and understand that Jesus is the Christ. He is God incarnate who possesses all authority to forgive. Indeed, he himself is the source of our forgiveness. Our forgiveness the source of it is a person, and that is Jesus himself. Secondly, though, the second reason that Jesus also said this again was to reassure the woman that she was truly forgiven. To reassure the woman that she was truly forgiven. You know, sometimes we can get so focused on the wretchedness of our sin that we have trouble believing that God really has forgiven us. We can come to the erroneous conclusion that we have somehow sinned so badly that we are beyond the reach of his grace. Like this woman, we can also sometimes be surrounded by plenty of religious people who try to make us feel unforgivable. So right there in front of the arrogant Pharisees, Jesus pronounced that this harlot was forgiven and free. He gave her direct reassurance of his work in her heart. And you know what, brothers and sisters, if any of you have ever struggled with doubt, have ever asked these questions of yourself, he does the same thing for every one of his children. He loves us so much. He wants to reassure us continually that he is indeed the one who will hold us fast as we just sang, that his forgiveness once bestowed upon us will never be removed from us. 
Whenever we are afraid that we are beyond the reach of his grace, all we need to do is go to his word. To go to his word and hear in his word, we will hear the voice of our Savior. We will have Jesus himself speaking to our hearts, telling us of his love, telling us of the surety that we are secure in him. Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And when you have those thoughts about, oh, but you don't understand, Pastor Sean, I have done so many horrible things in my past life, what does the word say to us? 1 Corinthians 6, 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Thus, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the reassurance that Christ gives every one of us who trust in him, brothers and sisters. In verse 50, Jesus concludes, he says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In this final statement, Jesus makes very clear the relationship between faith, love, and forgiveness. How was this woman saved? On what basis was she forgiven? It was not because of her love for Jesus, but because of her faith in Jesus. Do you know Roman Catholic scholars still go to this very passage? And they, they use it to support this idea that faith plus works saves us. They, they contend that this woman is demonstrating and Christ is affirming that her works, her service to the Savior, together with her faith, is what saved her. That's an absolute lie. That is an absolute denial of the biblical doctrine of justification, which says we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what Jesus affirms here. It was not because of her love for Jesus. It was because of her faith in Jesus that she's forgiven. Her love for him was the fruit of her justification, not the root of her justification. We are saved by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus alone. Faith in him is the way that we can have true peace with God and true peace in this life. Let us never forget the words of 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Right? We love because he first loved us. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is our assurance, brothers and sisters, and I pray you will walk in the truth of that this day. But if you are within the sound of my voice and you are not trusting in Christ, then you have no basis for any assurance. The Bible makes it very clear again that there is one way of salvation. Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is that name. 
Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As you come to this text this morning, I ask you, are you trusting in your own merits? Are you trusting in your own morality? Are you trusting in the idea that you are somehow a good person and that that will earn you right standing in God's sight? That will be the reason you should be led into heaven, into the presence of God for all eternity? Is that your belief? I would have you understand that this very day, you stand under the condemnation of God if you are apart from Christ, the only thing that you can be assured of is that you are a child of wrath. And if this life ends with no change in your heart, no faith in your heart, in Christ, you will be forever separated from God in a literal place called hell. But if you will acknowledge that you are a sinner, if you will be like this woman in our text, acknowledging the great weight of your sin and trusting and believing that Jesus Christ alone secures your forgiveness, that the life he lived, he lived for you, that the death he died on the cross, he died for you, that as he is risen from the grave, he is risen for you. If you trust in him and his work, his person, you too can be forgiven. You too can be made new. You too can be set free from sin and death and judgment if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I plead with you this day, turn from your sin and come to him who is the fountain of forgiveness, who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Believe in him, who is a compassionate Savior. Let us go before the Lord in prayer, and then let us come to his table. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the compassion and mercy that we see displayed so fully in Christ. May we be a people who are staggered by the reality of this forgiveness, who worship at your feet, and who give all glory and praise and honor to you, no matter the cost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.